0: Welcome to DISCUS. This is Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science brought to you by the APTA, AMPT, Spinal Cord Injury Special Interest Group. In this podcast, we bring you interviews with researchers and clinical leaders in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. Thank you guys all so much for joining us today. My name is Kristen Cizat.
1: And I'm Uzair Hamad.
0: And we are your hosts of DISCUS. We are so excited, and we hope everyone is really excited for today's episode because we have a real treat for you guys. Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Adele Fieldfote. Dr. Fieldfote has been a leader in spinal cord injury care and research over the past 30 years. And she and her group have recently published a study in the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation this year titled Characterizing the Experience of Spasticity After Spinal Cord Injury, a national survey project of the Spinal Cord Injury Model System Centers. So a little bit about doctor Phil Fote before we get started. She is the Director of the Spinal Cord Injury Research and Whole Spinal Injury Laboratory at Shepherd Center. She leads a team that's dedicated to improving motor function in persons with spinal cord injury through development of rehab approaches informed by the latest neuroscience research. Her contributions to the SCI literature include the largest study to date of locomotor training for persons with chronic motor incomplete SCI, as well as the first ever study of rehabilitation interventions to promote neuroplasticity for improved hand function in persons with tetraplegia. With a clinical background as a physical therapist and a PhD training in animal models of spinal cord injury, she has over 20 years of spinal cord injury research that has spanned the breadth of basic and clinical research related to spinal cord injury. Her research has been funded by the National Institutes of Health since 1997, as well as National Institute of Independent Living, Disability, and Rehabilitation Research, and the Department of Defense. She is the editor of a textbook that I have sitting on my shelf in my office, as well as she is currently the co-director of the NIH-funded training and grantsmanship in rehabilitation research. Dr. Phil Foté is also a professor at Emory University School of Medicine and in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine and. As, and a professor at the Georgia Institute Technology of School of Biological Sciences. So today, we want to welcome, thank you so much, Dr. Fiol-Fote, for joining us.
2: Well, thank you. Please call me Eddie, and I'm really happy for the opportunity to discuss this manuscript.
0: Awesome. Well, you're so excited to have you. So we'll, we'll kind of dive right in. So... We're going to start a little bit with the background of spasticity following spinal cord injury so one thing that i really love is the definition that your paper describes um, spasticity we all kind of know that general definition from school of um, spasticity being resistance to passive stretch but could you tell us a little bit more about the the definition that your group used in this paper
2: yeah i think it would be valuable to have a little bit of background about that lance definition from 1980 that we all learn in pt school Interestingly enough, if you look at the reference, it says it comes from a symposium on spasticity. And in, it, in fact, it wasn't like a group of scientists or a group of clinicians got together and decided on, you know, what does spas- what is spasticity and what does it mean? It was essentially um, Lance was listening to these presentations in the spasticity um, symposium that was held. And everyone was measuring spasticity in the same way, which was basically doing a quick stretch of the muscle and looking at their resulting movement or EMG activity. And so essentially, you know, that's what they could measure. And so they basically defined it based on what they could measure. But if you ask people with spinal cord injury and other neurologic conditions, you know, what does their spasticity mean to them? Very few of them will say, well, when you stretch my muscle, <laughs> I get a spasm. And so- In 2005, there was an international consortium that got together and said, "We, you know, we really need to have a definition of spasticity that's really describes the way it's experienced by people who have spasticity." And they came up with a different definition, which this time was based on a, a consensus of clinicians who actually, you know, know something about how spasticity is seen in people who have neurologic conditions, and they defined it as. Disordered sensory motor control resulting from an upper motor neuron lesion and presenting as intermittent or sustained involuntary activation of muscles. And the thing that I think is so valuable about that is that in this study that we'll be talking about today, people who talk about their spasticity um, say that the stiffness that's associated with spasticity is even more problematic than the spasms. And that that piece of the definition that talks about sustained involuntary activation really captures a spasticity piece where the Lance definition doesn't.
0: Yes, I love I love that definition because you're especially in clinical practice, you're exactly right. The the clients describe all the time the stiffness that they have and how problematic, but it is difficult to measure that. So I I'm I love the definition that you guys have used today.
1: Yeah, really. I couldn't agree more, Kristen so eddie to kind of follow that up could you describe to our listeners what exactly led you and your group to doing this current study on spasticity
2: i'd love to talk about that thanks see um i mean one of the things that we experience as clinicians is um when you talk to people who don't know anything about spinal cord injury or other neurologic conditions they think about though the movement impairment. They think about the fact that the person can't walk. They think about the fact that they can't feed themselves very well. Um, if you're lucky, they might think about in terms of spinal cord injury, the impact on bowel and bladder function, but most people have never heard of the term spasticity. And so the experience of people with spasticity in helping us understand how it feels to them and how Mm -hmm. it impacts their daily lives is really important. And so that was the primary motivation for this study.
1: Amazing. It's so meaningful to have such a large sample size you guys managed to include in your study as well with those living with spasticity to give researchers and clinicians insight into their experience. Awesome.
2: Yes. So we were only able to collect that large sample because we did this as part of a collaborative project with our um, other model systems collaborators. And so the model Shepherd is one of 14 model systems centers in the United States. And um, part of that model systems grant um, provides funding to allow people to collaborate on questions that are important to people with spinal cord injury.
1: Amazing. And for those of our listeners who haven't read the article yet, And uh, Eddie, correct me if I'm wrong. You guys had nearly 1,200 participants in that survey, right? Yeah, we
2: had 1,000. We had actually like 1,400 something. But when we pulled out the people who actually didn't have, because we were focusing on spinal cord injury, when we pulled out the individuals who um, didn't appear to really have spinal cord injury or who said that um, they had some other type of neurologic condition, Mm -hmm. we had 1,076 usable, verifiable uh, responses from people with spinal cord injury. That's
0: so meaningful. So let's dig a little bit into some of the findings from the study. So we'll start with... um, the types of injuries, which, which types of injuries reported experiencing the most spasms. And, and I'd like to dig a little bit into how the spasticity was affected by the age of the clients that you had surveyed.
2: Yeah. So, um, we found that people all across the board in terms of severity, um, report their that they have spasticity. I do want to say though, I think it's an important caveat to make in that we had people report their severity of injury using a self-report so we but it was an algorithm where we asked them questions about do you have leg movement do you have bowel and bladder function can you you have a voluntary anal contraction do you have sensation below your trunk and so based on the responses to those questions we developed an algorithm where we classified people as um A a or b or c and d together and um so that's kind of a caveat that we didn't have, we weren't basing the categorization on an Insky exam. Um, we were basing it on this algorithm that was developed to identify categorization based on the responses to those questions. And so people across all injury severities reported that they had spasticity. And one of the things that I think um, was valuable that came out of the study was that it confirms that. Those individuals who are older um, report fewer spasms in a day. And so I want to I, I think that I will slip into um, calling spasm spasticity and calling stiffness spasticity. And I want to first acknowledge that spasticity has many different characteristics. And I'll try as much as possible to stick with the characteristic that we're talking about, but I do like everyone else, I kind of lump them all together into this spasticity category. But people who are older re- reported having fewer spasms um, in their day. And I think that part of that maybe others have reported that too. Um, I think that part of it may be due to the fact that we lose motor neurons as we age. And so as motor neurons die, you have less units that are going to respond to those reflex inputs. And that may be why. People are experiencing fewer spasms, but that was one of the things I thought was very valuable that came out of um, this, these self reports.
0: Yes, absolutely. It was something that I hadn't really thought about in that kind of detail. And then when I when I read it, I thought I was you know clinically just thinking over the past eleven years, and and it you're I did notice that same thing kind of thing with my patients. Those with most severe spasticity do tend to be the younger folks. So I thought that was really neat to see. Yes. Um. Next, I'd like to dig a little bit into how often were the clients describing the frequency of the spasticity or the spasms throughout the day, and then what types of spasms were most reported?
2: Um, So most people reported that the spasms were due to some kind of trigger, um, like somebody moving them or touching them, that kind of thing, which is kind of what you'd expect. Mm -hmm. You think of um, spasms as being kind of a reflex response but a very large number of people reported that they would have these involuntary spasms that came out of nowhere that really just didn't appear to have any type of trigger. And in fact, one of the people who's an author on this paper is a very close colleague who has tetraplegia. And um, when we were developing the questionnaire, she said, and we actually included this as a question, because I I hadn't had someone talk about that before. She said that she um, will move or Or, um, you know, do a shift of her body when she feels like she's going to have a spasm. And she says by doing that, she has these, like, she triggers these small spasms in her day. And um, that prevents her from having a big spasm that really displaces her. And I hadn't really thought about that before. But it it it. It made me think of two things. First of all, people can sense when they're going to have a spasm. And that they develop strategies for how to deal with them.
0: That is so interesting. Kind of eliminating the large ones by creating small ones throughout the yeah. day. That's that's a that's a really interesting inside view to to living with spasticity. What did your group find as the most problematic aspects that the clients reported um, to having spasticity throughout the day? What were the most reported problems to having it?
2: Yeah. So there were a number of uh, items that they encountered in their daily lives that they cited as being impacted by their spasticity. I think for me, the things that were most meaningful were, you know, that it really does impact their physical comfort. It impacts the feelings of control and, or lack of control that they have over their bodies. Um, It the stiffness piece was one of the things that people have reported to me for many years, which I don't think is well characterized in the literature. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that came out of the study as being stiffness that's associated with spasticity was, came out as being most, more problematic than the spasms that we typically think of as being spasticity. I know, I think clinically we really understand that, but um, going back to that original definition from Lance of It doesn't capture that piece, which is the piece that people find most problematic. I think part of the difficulty is measuring stiffness is very difficult. And so that might be part of the reason that it's not well discussed in the literature.
0: Yes. And then lastly, from the study itself, maybe very briefly, if we could just talk about what the actual spasticity management strategies are that are available to our clients. And then what are the, the surveys that that you sent out? What was the most perceived value? What was the most um, helpful strategy to the clients that, that you surveyed?
2: Yeah. Kristen, if you don't mind, I just thought of something else that would be valuable to kind of mention related to the things that were cited um, as a being impacted by spasticity, you know, clinically, we sometimes tell our patients and clients that there are benefits to spasticity. And um, that that may be true. I mean, there are things so for example, if you think about big picture, and particularly things that we actually didn't measure in the study, um, we know there's very good evidence that spasticity um, preserves muscle mass And um, so that in people who have spasticity, they're likely to have better glucose regulation because they have more muscle mass, which is really important. And is something that's problematic for people with spinal cord injury. Um, But in terms of physical functioning, there were only a couple of things that people cited as being helped by their spasticity. And the amount that it was being helped by their spasticity was really little. So, for example, as you might expect, things like Dressing, things like being able to change position in bed, uh, transfers were some of the things that people cited um, that where their spasticity could be helpful. But those were the only three things that people cited that could be helped by spasticity. And only 10% of people responded that spasticity was helpful for those physical functioning um, activities. So. On to your question about what was ma- what management strategies were helpful, so we specifically asked about things like stretching and exercise and other activities and people re- reported that stretching was the most helpful intervention to help manage their spasticity. It was rated as being more helpful even than um, medications for managing spasticity and it makes you really realize that there's so much that we have in terms of our toolbox as physical therapists to be able to help people manage their spasticity. So that was really exciting to see.
0: That is so exciting to, to see that the, exactly that, that they value movement, which is our expertise in our area of um, of practice, even more so than some of the other common and sometimes even you know first first line of defense um, type options is not necessarily what the, the, the patients themselves are seeing. So I thought that was one of the most interesting things out of, out of the paper.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. I think, I mean, beyond the things that we asked, we asked about in terms of uh, stretching and exercise, there are other things that we as physical therapists have access to. Like um, there's good evidence in the literature that tens, for example, can be valuable for Managing spasticity. My own lab has done quite a bit of work looking at the effects of whole body vibration on spasticity. And um, we've done some early work to contribute to the emerging evidence that transcutaneous spinal stimulation, which is essentially, you know, kind of using TENS but in a a new way, um, can also be helpful for managing spasticity. So I think we have a number of things that we can use in our toolbox to help people manage their spasticity, particularly when it's not really clear if the meds are helpful. And for some people, they don't want to go on meds anyway.
0: Absolutely. I love the different options that you discuss, because sometimes when you look at the literature, depending on what region you're in, what setting you're in, you have just different available tools to you. So knowing what the literature supports and then being creative, if you don't have an FES bike, that things like TENS, um, that's such a great idea because that is something that's so accessible and even accessible to clients at home. Mm-hmm. Um, having your your toolbox that you select from versus just, we all kind of get comfortable in our, this is what I prefer, but it's bigger than that. It's bigger. It's knowing the literature that you guys have worked so hard to
1: produce for us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Okay. So Eddie, one of the elements we love about this podcast is helping clinicians put the findings of research into clinical practice, something we've frequently accomplished by the work that you do. So I'm wondering what advice you might have for clinicians to address spasticity and or educate clients to manage spasticity and what honestly feels like and ever-decreasing length of stay in outpatient visits?
2: I'm so glad you asked that, Zee. Um, so first of all, I think it's valuable to think about what the literature says about the interventions that seem to be effective for spasticity. And um, Kristen kind of touched on this. They're all kind of movement-related or activity-related. And so when you think about the neurophysiology of why people have spasticity, when we think of Upper motor neuron damage. We mostly think about, you know, the loss of descending activation of volitional m- movement and motor units. But in addition to that loss of descending activation of that activates movement, there's loss of the descending um, circuits that excite the inhibitory circuits to damp down movement, and all of the things that we've talked about: whole body vibration, spinal stem tens stretching those all activate afferents and movement is a very powerful way of activating afferents and it's very clear that afferent input is so valuable for damping down the excitability of neural circuits when they're hyperexcitable. and so i think we can it gives us the opportunity to be creative and work with our patients clients and identify what seems to work best for them educating them about what we know about what the literature says in terms of the interventions and seeing if what ideas they have for being able to um, manage spasticity and keeping track for themselves about what things seem to be helpful and what things aren't as helpful so they can develop their own management strategies. Another kind of important point about that is that, you know, some studies that we've done, you know, we have one study that we've just recently finished where we showed that the effects of whole body vibration didn't seem to last to the following day. And one might say, Oh, well, you know, it was short-term effect. Why would you even bother with it? But when we think about medications, right, they're taking medications twice a day, three times a day. So why shouldn't they stretch three times a day? And so educating the, um, the client that, you know, they are such an important role. They have such an important role in the management of their own spasticity First of all, figuring out what seems to work best for them, and then making the time in their day to actually do those things that help them manage their spasticity. And this kind of goes to the point, too, about, you know, there are opportunities to use these um, antispasmodic physical therapeutic interventions in the clinic, but educating people about their own ownership of their home programs is really an important piece. There are some people who do really well with just stretching in the morning and then stretching in the evening, but some people may need to do it another time during the day. Um, In terms of other management strategies, for example, in one of our whole body vibration studies, we showed that the effects of whole body vibration vary depending on when you measure it. So if you measure it immediately after the whole body vibration session, you actually increase spasticity. And then, but if you measure it 15 minutes later, the spasticity is decreased. And so that tells us as a physical therapist, we can use that information. Maybe I have someone who really needs their spasticity and benefits from their spasticity to help them in their locomotor training. And we might want to put that person on the whole body vibration device and then immediately do their locomotive training program. But someone else might be impaired by their spasticity and they might have, you know, more spasticity that interferes with walking. And so in those people, maybe we want to put them on a whole body vibration device and then do some upper extremity strengthening. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, when the spasticity has decreased, then we can have better outcomes from our locomotor training. And so us learning as clinicians, the timing of the, of the intervention is really valuable. And we still have a lot to learn about dosing, you know, how much, of something, how many times, how long we're still trying to figure out some of those things.
1: Amazing. That was such a wonderful answer. I feel like as clinicians, and especially as a newer clinician, we tend to kind of get attracted by the shiny objects. So the vibration plates and, you know, all (laughs) those things. And it's, it really is a multidimensional individualized type of management. So the, those examples and insight that you just provided is is super helpful in the clinical setting. I mean, we prescribe home exercise programs to our patients all the time, but it your work will really assist clinicians in being more strategic with their approach.
2: I'm glad to hear that.
1: Dr. Fields-Foté, thank you so much for joining us today. Your work influences and guides our spinal cord injury clinical practice every day. Thank you for doing this important work. Is there anything that you would like to leave with our listeners today before we sign off?
2: Um, I think that one of the most valuable roles that a physical therapist can play is in educating. And so we talked a little bit today about the importance of educating our patients and clients about you know, what they can do to help manage and be for them to be alert about the things that are helpful for them and not helpful for them when it comes to spasticity. And so that's kind of like the final message that I would would leave our listeners.
1: I love that. Education is definitely a key component of our profession. Well, thank you. That's the end of our chat for today. For our listeners, please check the show notes of this episode for a link to this crucial study and read it today. (laughs) And thank you for your consistent support of Discus and for joining us with our discussion with Dr. Eddie Field Foté, we are
2: Kristen Cizat
1: and Uzer Hamad, your host. Until next time.